this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to another edition of the in focus podcast i'm your host g sampath in august this year the union government introduced three bills in the lok sabha to overhaul the country's criminal justice system These bills were the Bharatiya Nyaya Sanhita 2023 which would replace the Indian Penal Code 1860 then there was the Bharatiya Nagrik Suraksha Sanhita 2023 which would replace the Criminal Procedure Code and then the Bharatiya Saksha Bill 2023 which would replace the Indian Evidence Act 1872 but last week the government withdrew all these three bills and reintroduced newer versions of them it has said that the recommendations of a parliamentary standing committee have been incorporated in the newer versions but there has been very little public debate or consultations on such a large scale legislative move to change uh, fundamental aspects of the criminal justice system and the bills uh, if the recent track record has been is any indication it it's very likely that the bills may be pushed through in the winter session of parliament without extensive debate or changes so what are the major changes envisaged in these bills do they enhance or do they curtail civil liberties and is there any merit in the fears expressed in certain quarters that they seek to weaponize the police and the law to target dissenters and political rivals we consider all these questions in some detail in this episode and we have with us zeba sikora from project 39a at national law university delhi zeba welcome to infocus and thank you so much for taking time for this podcast thank you thank you for having me great so zeba i was just wondering uh, to what extent do these bills uh, accomplish what the government has claimed that they are meant for i mean the government has justified them by citing the need for quote unquote recriminalizing and quote unquote indigenizing the criminal justice system in the country especially the criminal law uh, do you agree uh, that these bills are directed uh, towards achieving that objective and if so to what extent do they achieve it I think the biggest sort of perverted goal of the bills has been decolonization right and i think that to that effect what is really lacking is what is even any question actually about what is even our vision for decolonization right what are we rejecting where are we moving towards because if we think about the origin of the criminal code it was actually introduced in british colonies to try and ensure that there was a general law that was clear accessible it could be implemented by the police without much judicial interference so it was a utilitarian function that they sought to achieve with it even though of course there was that imperial agenda to control the colonized population and its design and its everyday practice there was discrimination and incredible violence right so that is really the origin of the system that we are trying to move away from and now when we are thinking of disrupting this colonial legacy and this colonial framework what do we want to replace in its place so in some ways the the bills that were introduced in august and the redrafted versions that came out recently they aren't really effectively reimagining the way we think about criminal law so the framework 
that Macaulay had introduced that remains the same to a large extent. I mean, in the IPC and also the criminal uh, framework more broadly. And also, if you see some of the research that we've done, um, it's clear that more than 70% of the original bills have been retained, right? Language has been retained. The structure of the code and the procedure has largely been retained. There's been some reorganization, but not enough substantive change. So now that we are moving away, are we also sort of recalibrating what were the points of violence? How can we think about our criminal justice system more differently? What were the points of violence and how do we sort of move away from them? The question that still remains is that are the things that were, you know, um, really the cause of discrimination and violence, have they continued? Do they remain as colonial continuities? So one of the biggest things that you also mentioned in your introduction that sort of remains in this bill is that there has been this inclusion of new offenses with vague um, description and definition. And in some ways, what the imagination of the IPC was initially, what I started with, that, um, you know, unaccessible, clear, and in some ways, a predictable law, that is being done away with, right? And this is there especially for acts and offenses that are against the state. The consequence of this will be overcriminalization, and that can't really be a decolonized agenda. Additionally, there has been an expansion of police powers through, you know, powers of investigation and all of these aspects, you know, vague offenses, wider offenses, expanded powers, they really sort of entrust a significant degree of power in the hands of the state and really at the cost of the people and the population more generally. So in this context, we need to think about, is this really a move towards decolonization or not? Right. Thank you so much for that really uh, I mean, uh, clarifying perspective on this entire question of decolonizing uh, the laws. Eva, I think I really appreciated uh, what you what you just explained. I mean, I, I, I think I broadly speaking uh, and very quickly, I think four big points uh, come to me uh, when I sort of, uh, when I was hearing what you just said. One, of course, you are saying that uh, notwithstanding the explicit claim of decolonizing, that is, uh, that is really is no vision of a decolonized uh, system of law. There is no reimagining of what we already have. Uh, so the, the original uh, utilitarian approach to a general law, which had a lot of violence encoded in it, uh, there is no change in terms of you know, recalibrating it downward. Maybe there is a recalibrating it uh, to a, a much higher grade of violence we don't know we'll come to that that is number one secondly you spoke about the offenses being uh, pretty broad and vague and thirdly uh, you refer to over criminalization of uh, various things uh, which is not really uh, what a decolonizing tendency would uh, would sort of indicate and lastly you spoke about expansion of police powers which is again uh, something which a colonizing power might want to do and not definitely a democratic uh, country so these four points i think are really well taken thank you for that and moving on uh, from this broad uh, perspective uh, zeba i was wondering uh, from the perspective of an ordinary citizen say a lay, the layman what 
in your view, are the major takeaways or changes uh, introduced in these uh, three bills? I know they, they each of them refer to a different statute, but yeah, taking them together. Yeah, I mean, um, if we were to uh, think about what is the main takeaway, I think, I mean, I feel like I do have to come back to this question of overcriminalization and vague offenses. And I feel like I will sort of emphasize that repeatedly in this conversation. I think also because the full extent of such a move, I think it's hard for people on a day-to-day to really understand the full extent of its impact, right? I mean, as an ordinary person, your sense or engagement with the criminal justice system is that it's never going to be me. But the problem with something like vague offenses, and I think that that really is the key takeaway that people need to think about when we're sort of, as we are moving ahead with these laws, as you said, um, that most likely we might, is that what does it mean when there is no sort of clarity and predictability of what acts really make up an offence, right? And this is not something that, you know, um, can possibly exclude a large number of people. I mean, it is something that I think potentially affects all of us. So for instance, I'll give you an example, right? A new provision that's been, a new offense that's been introduced is one that criminalizes misinformation. So it's been introduced in the new BNSS and BNS, um, and it sort of is unchanged even in the new version. And there, what is being criminalized is false or misleading information that jeopardizes the sovereignty, unity, integrity, and security of India. So, so when you say criminalizing misinformation, isn't misinformation or whatever? Is it not a is not a criminal offense now? So misinformation in its, um, I mean, there are provisions that could be used to try and criminalize it, but not directly. I think what has happened in the new iteration is that there is something that's been introduced that directly seems to address this problem. And I think that can be seen throughout the changes that have been uh, brought about across the three bills, right? That there are problems that exist. And even if there were existing provisions that accommodated that, right, that included action against an offense like this, what the new bill does, at least for misinformation, is that it's included a new provision that directly attacked something like this. But what it's doing in this process is that it's adopting an extremely wide language to do so. So when we're saying something that is false or misleading without really clarifying, it's clarifying what we mean by those two words, right? They are extremely broad. They can be interpreted subjectively. I mean, how, I mean somebody might wonder, like, what, what, is, uh, what is misleading about, uh, I mean, what is, uh, what is uh, broad or vague about false and misleading? Don't uh, put out anything which is false, which is not fact-based, and don't put out anything which is misleading, which is, again, not fact-based. So, I mean, someone, just, to, just for the sake of argument, somebody might say these are fairly clear things. Why, where do you see the danger uh, emanating from uh, in this case? 
No, absolutely. So the thing is that, um, for instance, something like this, the way the provision has been framed, there's no requirement of knowledge. So I, as a person, I don't need to be aware of the fact that something is false, right? And we're also thinking of this question of falsehood and reality in this world of misinformation, in this world where, you know, uh, this problem of AI or fake doctored things exist. So the problem exists, the fact that there has been a lot of misinformation and circulation of videos that have been fabricated or doctored, and it's led to some severe consequences, right? So that's what it's trying to rectify. But the problem with something like this is that I, as a person, I may get something in my WhatsApp forward. I don't need to actively know that this thing is false or misleading. I may just circulate it and still fall within the scope of this provision. I'm attracted. This provision gets attracted to me. I don't need to intend to jeopardize this really broad statement itself, sovereignty, unity, integrity of India. I That needn't be my intention, but just the fact that I circulated something that was considered false or misleading by, say, the police investigator, I may be sort of hit by this provision. The thing about something like false or misleading increasingly in this time is that there's so much sort of lack of clarity. I mean, not lack of clarity, but there's in a polarized time like ours, in some ways, something that one doesn't agree with or someone in a position of power doesn't agree with, that can immediately be sort of um, come within the ambit of misleading. Right. So suppose somebody to take to take and to make it clearer for uh, listeners, I'm just I just thought of this example out of my top of my head. Uh, let's say there is something uh, which somebody circulates and then that uh, that piece of uh, content which this person circulates is uh, denied by the government, let us say, and there, and there is no no recourse if the government says this is false. And that would make it false, regardless of whether it is objectively false or not. Is that something, uh, a scenario we could be looking at? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or even this, right? I may write a piece about, um, for instance, the bills or a government policy that may be critical of it, right? It may... To somebody else, it may seem misleading. And also, again, what, what what's important to sort of point out here is this question of actual falsity or actual sort of uh, something being misleading is a question that will finally be determined only in a court. Right. But the attraction of the provision and for me to sort of face the processes of the law under it, that may start the moment someone decides to take action against me under this provision. So in that context, what a broad provision like this does is it the implication of this is that it actively um, sort of impacts free speech. So the chilling effect of something like this may be that everyone is more cautious about what they say to the point where they are hesitant to maybe criticize or speak up or, um, you know, dissent in some ways. And not even that, but like, you know, I mean, when we're thinking about how the criminalization of even 
um, say humor or jokes, satire plays out. Satire by its very design is supposed to be exaggerated. But something like that may fall within the scope of this just because, you know, it's not entirely true. It's not legal truth. Right. So that's in some ways the problem with a provision like this. In the sort of IT rules that um, were recently released under the uh, Information Technology Act, where, um, you know, there's um, the judgment, the Supreme Court's judgment from a few years ago, where Section 66A of the uh, Information Technology Act was really, you know, the Supreme Court's position on that was the importance of sort of precision when it comes to uh, framing offenses that actively impact free speech, right? So that that's a really important judgment that sort of also implies, sort of helps us think about this particular provision and how we must interpret it. But um, there were also IT rules that were released um, that are being challenged before uh, the Bombay High Court because of the use of language like false and misleading. So there is this concern that exists. And of course, um, for more detail, I mean, a lot of our writing on each of these provisions, you know, that the team at Project 39A has been working on, that that would be useful to sort of clarify all of this. Right. Uh, sorry to interrupt, uh, Ziba. I mean, uh, we're just running short of time. I just wanted to uh, ask you about this, uh, another very important point, which I sort of draw, drew from uh, your uh, piece with Anup recently. This, the BNSS expands uh, the maximum limit of police custody of arrested persons from 15 to 90 days. I was just wondering, uh, we already know, uh, we keep reading about, you know, custodial torture, custodial death and so on. So getting arrested and being in police custody for such a long time and it's sort of, I'm wondering, would it have a chilling effect too? And as the government explained, uh, either in parliament or elsewhere, the reasons, the necessity for extending the police custody, the high, the high limit from 15 to 90 days. I mean, I'm just wondering if you can talk about the implications of this change. Yeah, absolutely. This is, I think, one of the biggest changes, right, that um, is going to impact civil liberties. So I think before I get into the change, I think it's important to really establish what is the current position of law. So currently, police custody, because as you mentioned, there is a skepticism, right, about someone being in police custody because of vulnerability to their safety and security, but also possibility of fabrication of evidence. There's been a limit. The law has really tried to limit the time that uh, police custody can be allowed, because in some ways you're recognizing the need to balance the interest of the police to conduct investigation, but at the same time sort of protect interests of the accused, right? So because of that, the law has been um, interpreted to allow remand to police custody only for 15 days. The question of whether it needs to be the first 15 days or um, it needs to be, you know, 15 days throughout the period of investigation is currently that's an issue that's sort of being decided by the Supreme Court. 
right? What the law has done is it really clarifies this, that the police can be authorized to have uh, an accused in their custody for a period of 15 days. That can be at any point, but also beyond 15 days at any point throughout the period of investigation. So the police in the general law needs to sort of submit their charge sheet, which really marks the completion of um, investigation after 60 or 90 days, depending on the seriousness of the offense. And what the law has done, it by sort of omitting the um, explicit exclusion of police custody. It allows for, you know, the magistrate to authorize detention in police custody for any period throughout the period of 60 and 90 days. So in this case, the way it's designed is that, you know, that careful balance between police and accused interests, you're really leaning in favor of the police and really compromising constitutional rights of the accused. Right, Ziba. Just for the sake of context, I was just wondering, I may be wrong here, but my impression is that the system of, you know, just uh, arresting someone and keeping them in jail with police custody for the purpose of investigation, I mean, isn't that like very selective? Isn't that unique to India? I mean, in Western democracies, you arrest a person once you're, you have got your evidence and you're, you're ready to charge that person or you've got your charge sheet done. Then you go and arrest that person because they're going to go stand for trial, right? When they don't start, they don't arrest the per- person for the sake of investigation. You can call them for questioning, but you can't arrest. Here, I think in India, it's a weird arrest happy kind of a system. Is that is that right? I mean, the way it's designed here, it that is the effect of it. You're right, because the reality of our system is that, you know, majority of the people who are detained, even in prisons, which is judicial custody, you know, opposed to police custody, they are under trials. I mean, there ha- there is an emphasis on arrest, that is true. And I think the manifestation of that honestly, it's not just police custody, but it's also what we see in our prisons, right? So when we talk about this problem of overcrowding of jails, or the fact that, you know, there are numbers every year that talk about how more than um, 60 or 70% of the total population in jail right now are actually under trials. It's true that by design, we sort of focus on arrest, right? Though even the way jurisprudence is designed and the law is designed is that arrest only needs to happen when certain conditions are satisfied. And increasingly, there have been recent judgments that sort of try and emphasize that arrest should not happen if the accused has been, um, you know, the Uh, the offense that they've been involved in is for, um, the punishment is for a period less than seven years and things like that. Anesh Kumar judgment really emphasizes this. So there has been a move in our jurisprudence and courts practice to try and reduce arrests, right, in offenses that are not considered to be heinous and very serious. But I think the the manner in which things play out is also a product of several aspects of the criminal justice system that most people do have. The, most, the people who are most attracted by this are people who don't come from um, 
you know, are um, socioeconomically marginalized, are often people who are involved in multiple offenses, are, they fall within the category of repeat offenders. A lot of people involved are actually on offenses of theft and things like that. Even when bail is given, a lot of them um, do so not So the, the have... BNS and BNSS, uh, they don't really change this scenario in any way. They, they, they rather than uh, decolonizing the arrest mindset, they sort of ex- exacerbate it even more. Is that correct, a fair correct. judgment? Yeah, correct. Though I feel like in this conversation, I mean, of course, that's true in some ways. But I think in this conversation, maybe the two things, maybe we are also conflating two things, right? So what the remand provision is doing, I think it needs to be seen largely from the lens of the leeway actually given to the police to conduct investigation. So for that reason, the time that an accused is sent to police custody during investigation, that has expanded. What this provision does, as you rightly pointed out, it's not changing the existing practice around arrest and the fact that when most people in our criminal justice system, when they are involved in an offense and they are picked up by the police, they continue to be a part of that system, not just in police custody, but also in judicial custody. Because what the law allows for this person who is, you know, while the police is investigating, and I mean, this is also pre-trial stage, before trial has even started, the law also authorizes their detention in judicial custody, as I pointed out, in the prisons. Right. The the one aspect that the bill that the uh, BNSS, right, um, the replacement for the CRPC, what it tries to marginally change is the provision on bail. Right. When we realize that a lot of people are actually in prisons for long periods of times without their trial even starting, what the law allows for is that for people who finished one third of their sentence, there are conditions to this. But people who have finished that, they can be released on bail until their trial starts. But what the system doesn't actually do away with is the financial requirement for bail, right? The fact that you need to have, you need to give surety. And that's the reason the inability to pay surety, considering that most people involved don't have the economic capacity to do so, is that the problem of overcrowding. So how does the BNSS change this bail thing? It reduces the period. So it um, instead of the current position of law was that if you finished half your sentence, you would be eligible for consideration. Uh, now, if you finished one third of your sentence for particular offenses, you know, and um, serious offenses are except uh, are excluded from it. If you're a repeat offender, that's excluded. But what it does is it reduces the time spent, the limit of the time spent for you to be eligible for bail. Right. Uh, Zeba, uh, moving on to uh, another big aspect which has been talked about a lot, uh, uh, that is to do with the offense of terrorism, which now comes under two statutes, the BNS and the UAPA. So uh, I was just wondering, how would it work out uh, for an accused if that person was charged uh, for terrorism under BNS and under UAPA? I mean, does uh, BNS have the kind of safeguards that the UAPA does? I mean, do we even need two different provisions, two different statutes for the same offense? 
Absolutely. I mean, this is uh, something that's, that really there's no clarity on, to be very honest. Um, and the question as to why have um, special offenses, right? When I say special offenses, serious offenses that have been so far been governed under special statutes, why have they been included in the general law? I think that's a question that I don't think anyone has much of an answer to because the bills themselves don't provide an answer to this. For terrorism in particular, so the earlier draft had a very broad definition of terrorism. It went beyond what the UAPA also allowed, you know, how it thought about the offense itself, how they thought about who is a terrorist, what is even a terrorist organization. But what the UAPA, uh, what the revised version of the bills do is that it brings this definition in line with the UAPA. Sure. What it does include is a provision where um, an officer not lower than the rank of a superintendent of police, they can decide which of the two, you know, whether the person needs to be um, um, sort of investigated, the crime, the offense against them, the FIR against them, should it be registered under the UAPA or the um, BNS. So, which is worse? Is it better to be, from the point of view of getting bail and so on, I'm just saying to make it clear what I meant by which is worse. Is it better that a person is booked under BNS or is it better under UAP? UAP because is, is, is it the same for both the statutes where in UAPA we know that uh, it, it, when the person is presumed to be uh, guilty unless I mean it, it's, it's his or her uh, onus to prove their innocence, which is contrary to whatever general uh, criminal law. Is that the same with BNS as well? I mean, <laughs> to answer this uh, simply is that um, the UAPA continues to have wider powers for the police. Sure, there are some safeguards, right? The fact that there needs to be a sanction that's obtained. So a special permission needs to be obtained before prosecution of an offense against UAPA can happen. Senior police officers need to do need to carry out investigation under the UAPA. But at the same time, what the UAPA continues to um, sort of do is gives much wider powers to the police. The threshold for bail, I think that's what you were referring to, that's also much higher, right? So all of the problems with, I mean, all of the sort of stringent provisions with a special legislation continues and not all of that is included in the BNS. But I think, which is why I think how we're thinking about what it means to include special legis special offenses in a general statute, right? And it's not just terror, it's the same for organized crime as well, is that I think in some ways there has been a move to try and bring exceptionalism, right, and stricter provisions into ordinary criminal law. And what that may mean, the implications of this is, again, something that we started with, right? What does it mean for, like, overcriminalization in some ways? Because what you have are offenses that are broad in many ways, even though there has been substantive reduction, I mean, there's been comparative reduction in the scope of the uh, offense of Organized Crime and Terrorist Act 
in the revised version of the bill, it continues to be very broad. The reason why it's also broad in exceptional statutes is because it's trying to um, sort of create a system against an exceptional offense, right? Which is also why every um, sort of aspect of the state is given extra powers, like the way the police functions under these special statutes. So what one has done is imported these broad offenses in a special, in a general law, thereby in some ways expanding the scope, I suppose, of people who can get sort of hit by it. Right. Offenses against the state and especially such broadly worded ones are subject to misuse because the idea is this, right? There is a lack of clarity about what are the acts that fall within this scope. Right. I mean, I, I, I remember reading, uh, I think I think, I think it was a piece by Professor Mohan Gopal where he spoke about, uh, you know, the government firing from two guns, uh, so to speak. You know, one, uh, which is the general statute, which is the BNS and the other is the uh, UAP. And, and from what you're saying, Ziba, I think you spoke about over-criminalization earlier in the context of more offenses or more, more activities or things such as misleading information uh, being criminalized. And here, I think we are also finding that uh, the, the over-criminalization takes also the form of greater uh, degree of draconian, you know, uh, draconization, so to speak, of whatever laws we have for what are already uh, criminal offenses. Uh, and that's really, uh, I think, something uh, to think about. Now, coming to uh, the, the the fourth big issue, which uh, people have been talking about with regard to these three bills, and that is the offense of sedition, which, as we know, the Supreme Court has effectively sort of rendered inoperable. But now, uh, apparently, this sedition kind of an offense uh, is back through the, you know, through another door, so to speak, uh, with with like uh, predictably vague uh, formulation. So, so is sedition still there on your statute books in some form or is it like properly gone? No, it remains. It remains in a new form, in a new form, but it's still there. So what, um, and as you rightly uh, pointed out, it's also much broader than the provision of sedition. Not to say that, uh, you know, 124A of the IPC, I mean, the biggest reasons why its its constitutionality is under question right now is because it is broad and vague, right? There was, even after years of jurisprudence trying to add some clarity about what is the object of this offense, what is the um, act that it seeks to criminalize, there's still been lots of confusion about which acts fall within its scope, therefore leading to over-criminalization. So what the current version of it, which is Clause 152 of the redrafted bill, what it's also doing, I mean, it's in some ways it adds more um, at first blush. It seems like it's, you know, um, adding more context and examples of what are activities that might amount to, um, you know, seditious activities in some ways. But at the same time, the language that continues to be used is, again, 
really broad without any definition. So the same problems that we've been talking about, you know, about misuse and, um, you know, lack of clarity that continues. So for instance, it uses, um, it seeks to really criminalize um, acts, you know, that basically words spoken or written that excite or attempt to excite subversive activities right so what is subversive there's no definition of that but anything that sort of critiques um the uh, you know dominant sort of narrative could be considered subversion right a protest is subversion or it also seeks to criminalize encouraging feelings of separatist activities encourage i mean criminalization of feelings by itself how do you even account for that you know so again what the new bill does is doesn't decolonize, I mean, doesn't sort of get rid of what has been widely acknowledged to be a colonial relic, but it sort of introduces it in a new form, but it doesn't solve all the problems that existed with it, right? Right. I mean, it's, uh, it's rather than decolonizing, I think it is uh, doing rather as maybe colonizing by other means. Uh, if you want to take the example of Serishin. Now, I mean, I was, we've been a lot of uh, taking a fairly critical look at uh, these three bills and their provisions. But I was just wondering, uh, did you find anything uh, praiseworthy, positive? happy making kind of uh, provisions in the big which is an improvement i mean uh, we read i mean uh, something about timelines and uh, you know accountability you need to make videos of seizures and all that are those like positive things we can uh, take away from these uh, three bills or are there any other uh, good things about them of course yeah i mean see there have been changes that have been introduced to, um, you know the broad sort of goals in some ways if we have to think about what have the bills sort of achieved that's been through an emphasis on speedy justice, right? There's been an emphasis on advancement in technology, right? So use of more electronic, I mean, there's been an emphasis in electronic evidence, but also the use of audio-video technology, as you rightly pointed out, during search and seizures by the police, which is an incredible, um, which will be an incredible step towards ensuring transparency and accountability of police action. There have been some provisions that have been introduced to I mean, there were existing um, interpretations that allowed that, but now there's a more explicit recognition of the role of victims in the system, right? So there's a provision of uh, for the police to give them information, like make sure they are given a copy of the FIR, but also updated about the progress in the investigation. One of the barriers to prosecution in cases of torture cases was that sanction to prosecute public servants was often um, withheld. And now the current uh, law, it also, it includes a provision of deemed sanction, right? So if sanction is not given between a particular time period, then sanction would have been deemed to have been given. That means trial can proceed. So all of this exists. But I think that especially when it comes to things like speedy justice, right, or even electronics and forensics, so I can come to that slightly later, 
One sort of criticism, if I were to sort of make that point, is that even though a lot of these provisions have great intentions, right, in some ways, their approach towards resolving problems in the criminal justice system are not designed in a way that addresses the root cause of these problems. So as you mentioned, timelines, right? One of the biggest things that has been an inclusion in the uh, BNSS has been to introduce timelines at every stage of the criminal system. And then this includes like how framing of charges, how that process is carried out, including like when the judgments need to be delivered, um, you know, within a period of, say, 45 days and things like that. And all of this is important, right? We do suffer from high levels of pendency. There are judicial delays, which don't help anyone. But at the same time, the thing to think about is why do the delays happen in our justice system? Is it, I mean, the reality of it is also that courts are overburdened, right? The number of pending cases before the system, it goes up to, I mean, just district courts goes up to about 3 million, right? And within this overburdened system where Every actor, whether it's the judge, court staff, or the police, everyone is stretched. Does an introduction of timeline really solve the problem? Or in this like crazy effort to meet the timelines, would it actually lead to some unintended consequences, right? Of you know, a judge that has so much on their plate when they also know that they need to write so many judgments within, say, 45 days. What is the implication of that on them? So these are certain things that I feel like haven't been thought about. The other sort of place where in an effort for speedy justice, what has been introduced is this provision that allows for trials to be carried out in absentia for offenders who are found to be absconding. Okay. And I understand, I mean, the need behind it is important, right? There are several cases where accused are evading arrest or trial, and it's really frustrating the justice system, right? Um, and in order to sort of overcome that challenge, what the uh, law does is that, you know, um, the court needs to, within 90 days of framing of charges, if the accused is absconding, then they can commence trial in their absence. Now, the implication of something like this is that the right to be meaningfully heard and the right to fair trial is an is a fundamental right, right? In some ways, it's what determines whether fair trial has been happened. In some ways, it's what gives legitimacy to the final judgment that all the processes were carried out appropriately. Right. Sorry to interrupt again, Zeba. I mean, I, I, I get your point here. I mean, we, we started off by talking about the positive things, one of which uh, in the bill was a speedier justice. But there again, I mean, as you very rightly pointed out, there are uh, two issues. One, of course, uh, the question of capacity. I mean, you spoke about the huge amount of pendency of cases, overstretched police force and so on. And on the other side, uh, I mean, if one side you have capacity lacking, the other side, of course, the question of mistrials happening because uh, of so much pressure to uh, stick to uh, timelines, which in the context of poor capacity would be really unrealistic, you know, some would say. 
Well, so speedy justice is, of course, is going to be there on paper. How it works out in practice is something, of course, uh, it's a big question mark. Uh, coming to my final question uh, to you, uh, Zeba. I mean, we have discussed uh, so many of these various uh, problematic uh, aspects of these three bills. We spoke about sedition, we spoke about overcriminalization, expansion of police powers, uh, offenses being rather vague and broad. I mean, it's like uh, a recipe for going out on fishing expeditions and, you know, get all the fish in, so to speak. Now, is there any mechanism uh, to ensure that the changes to the statutes, which have served us for so many years, I mean, they are colonial, etc. Yes, but they have worked for so many decades, you know, these statutes such as IPC, CRPC, etc. So the changes which are being made through these bills, if they're going to be curtailing uh, civil liberties as seems to be the case, then, uh, I mean, it makes one wonder if they are in keeping with the spirit and morality of the constitution. We speak of constitutional morality. So is there anything uh, in the constitution or elsewhere, any kind of recourse which, which the public, the citizens could uh, go to to ensure that these three bills are in keeping with the spirit of the constitution or is it just a matter of uh, public opinion and the executive can go ahead and uh, make whatever changes uh, they may want even if it is uh, explicitly or, or evidently colonial rather than decolonizing. I mean the legislature really acts on behalf of the people and they need to do it keeping in mind the constitution. So in this context when it comes to the bills really the parliament is critical, right? And the debates and conversations that we're having there are critical because it is there when, you know, we're thinking about new provisions where there are sort of difficult decisions that lawmakers need to make when they're balancing competing interests, when they're thinking about state interests, but at the same time can't compromise and abuse rights. As I was talking about that in absentia trial, right? Speedy justice, um, justice at a quick pace, but also fair trial rights. Now, when you're thinking that these are things to reckon with, to debate, to discuss in parliament, and hopefully there is and sort of the eventual aim needs to be that when this is, um, if this becomes law, there is that clear intention and thought that's gone into why certain decisions have been made. At the same time, the constant check that remains, right, is the courts. And they are, in some ways, the conscience keeper of the legislature and the executive, for that matter, to make sure that... But you, you make this distinction between the legislature and the executive. I mean, I'm sorry, I should have said legislature when I asked you this question, but I said executive. And I think uh, that that slip of the tongue, if, if it was that, it's sort of indicative of, I think, the general uh, climate of uh, lawmaking here, you know. I mean, where one really doesn't get a sense, uh, I don't know about you, but I, one doesn't really get a sense that the legislature is sort of pulling its weight in terms of, you know, uh, presenting its point of view and, you know, pushing through certain changes that would keep executive access in check. It looks like the executive is running the legislature, so to speak, when it shouldn't be uh, that way. I mean, that probably explains why I said executive rather than legislature. I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt. Please uh, go ahead with your uh, response. I mean... See, honestly, I won't say that the executive is running the show. I feel like that would be an overstatement. And, you know, as people who work on legal research and work 
in courts and things like that, at some level, you do sort of have faith that uh, the conscience keeper, which is what I was talking about, for any action, right, whether it's the legislatures or the executives, there are they, they are the ones who actually ensure that the constitutional vision, right, and um, fundamental rights and what are, what really is the basic structure of, you know, our constitution and just how laws need to be made, that's retained and that isn't compromised. But yeah, which is why I feel like maybe an unintended consequence of sort of pushing through these laws without sort of reckoning with some of the questions that have that you know our work has been raising is that maybe it will need the courts to step in and sort of clarify right what is the scope of different provisions or um, to ensure that all of the provisions that I've mentioned that seem to compromise fair trial rights or compromise the constitutional rights of the accused those are sort of read and interpreted and practiced in a way that it isn't excessive. It isn't exec- excessive executive police power that's really ruling the show. Um, <laughs> but for that, I think we'll just have to wait and watch. I feel like there's uh, there are multiple levels of waiting and watching that next few days. And if uh, the bills were to pa- be passed, then you know once they come into effect, um, what is the consequence? Because I think another point that I just want to make is that it's not. Uh, a small exercise really to have uh, to expect our um, judicial system or actually our entire criminal justice system to function with two frameworks of laws at the same time, right? Because the applicability of the new laws were they to be introduced would be for offenses that um, are registered after they come into effect. But for pending investigations, trials, proceedings, appeals, for all of that, the current legal framework will continue. So the burden on courts, you know, and the entire system, lawyers, police, is to really balance and uh, like juggle with two separate frameworks, right, which are both complicated and have their own sort of logic. So So the police, the judges uh, and the lawyers, they all have to sit down and read uh, this massive uh, loads of text, uh, the new three new bills and uh, compare them with the old ones and and know which offenses, uh, according to their timelines, go to which uh, set of laws i think you know um, and one can't really envy the the task they have on hand thank you so much aziba for uh, coming on board here for the show and sharing your uh, very very informative and perceptive observations and insights on these three bills I and mean, as you rightly said we have to wait and watch how uh, they go through parliament i really hope uh, you are uh, you're absolutely right in expecting that these three bills would be uh, debated in a robust way and hopefully all the concerns that you have flagged uh, get, uh, I don't know, addressed through amendments. Yeah, I will have to wait and watch what happens. Thank you so much once again. An absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.